Welcome to the Financial Coaches Network, a show to help financial coaches build and grow successful coaching businesses by focusing on the three pillars, getting clients, working with clients, and running the business. I'm Garrett Fulbin. Over the first four years as a coach, I grew a successful financial coaching business to over 80K in annual revenue. And I'm Joshua Escalante Troche. As a tenured professor of entrepreneurship and a consultant, during the past two decades, I've helped more than a thousand entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. So get that pen and paper ready or open up the notes app on your phone. It's time to build your ideal financial coaching business. We have a new co-host, Emily, as Garrett's taking some time off. We'll be doing a future series on group coaching. But for today, Emily, what are we talking about? Today, we're going to talk about one of financial coaches and solopreneur, entrepreneur's favorite topics, navigating self-employment taxes. Okay, favorite might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's something that everybody is always really interested in because it's kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah, and it surprises a lot of people. Um, I, I oftentimes joke that the IRS is my best referral source. <laughs> Being surprised by unemployment tax or by self-employment taxes is a big part of that uh, IRS being a good referral source for my business. Yep. I've dealt with that too. When I'm talking with clients, just a little bit about how much of that, Oh, you're, you're starting a photography business. That's so cool. Set aside 30% for taxes. They're like, I don't want to. I'm like, well, that'll be a ballpark. And then next year we'll figure out how accurate that is. Yeah. I have a lot of clients that wish it was 30%. Yeah. It's, yeah. It seems like a good starting point, but maybe that's a good starting point is how do you figure out that? starting point. Yeah. So the worst thing you can do is read a book. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. Uh, you know, I, there's a lot of books out there that give a percentage um, that, I mean, setting aside an arbitrary percentage is better than setting aside zero percentage. Which is what a lot of, which is what a lot of people do. do. I'm guessing most financial coaches set something aside or know that they should. Theoretically, maybe, but I think you'd be surprised. Maybe. Yeah, that's probably fair. Yeah, um, but really, you know, you really need to think about, you know, when we think about self-employment taxes, this is one component of the entire tax picture. Um, so, a much better way of doing it is to do a projection of your future taxes. Uh, actually, fill out a ten forty, or have your financial advisor or CPA fill out a ten forty. And I projected one and then uh, identify what that realistic percentage is going to be. That's that's what I do with my clients is we do a projection um, in April of every year of the coming year. Right. What uh, if you have no idea what your income is going to be? Because I would assume in order to do a projection, you need to have a rough idea of how much you'll be making. Yep. What if you're just starting out and you're like, I don't have any clients. Theoretically, it would be nice to be making 50 grand in a year, but that feels really unrealistic. So what if I make 10? But what if I think I'm going to? Yeah, this so, is the way my mind works as yeah. I start spiraling into all of the options. So let's start with if you overestimate in this category, in this situation, that is actually a conservative estimate, because if you estimate your percentages based on making 50 grand and you only make 10, 
your effective tax rate is going to be lower, right? So you'll be, it won't be lower by as much as you think, but it will be slightly lower. And so you'll have overpaid your taxes. Um, we could do an entire episode on the concept of tax planning. <laughs> so we want to do how you make the adjustments that are necessary and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, this is one of the areas where one of the few areas where overestimating what you think you can make is is going to be beneficial. And unless you overestimate by a ridiculous amount, right, where you say, oh, I'm going to make seven million dollars my first year. Um, Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't yeah. we all like that? Your your marginal tax rate may be different by a significant amount, but your effective tax rate is probably not going to be uh, significantly changed. Right. And for those who are going, oh, shoot, I know I've heard those before, but marginal versus effective tax rates. So your marginal tax rate is you've added one more dollar to your income. What is that additional dollar? Right. Marginal means additional. So what is that additional dollar going to be taxed at? Your effective tax rate is when we look at all of your dollars, what is the weighted average tax rate of all of those dollars? So to put that another way, the marginal is the tax rate that you pay on the last dollar you earned. Right. So if and you And then the other one is the average. Yeah. So let's say that you're you're straddling between the well, let's say that you are between the zero and 10% tax brackets. Right? Easy numbers. I like it. Yeah, easy numbers. And so if if the first $10,000 is standard deduction, so that's taxed at 0%, right? If you, and then you make $20,000 in total, right? So your marginal tax rate is 10%. Right? Because that last dollar, that $20,000 was in the 10%. Mm -hmm. Yep. And your effective tax rate is 5% because 50% of your money is taxed at 0%, 50% of your money is taxed at 10%. We made the weighted average calculation very simple here. It's literally the weighted average in this scenario is the average, <laughs> right? Um, and so as a result, you end up with that 5% that weighted average. And I would imagine that there are a million calculators online you can use to find. I mean, there's charts to figure out, and I'm Probably. sure there are calculators to figure out the um there's probably a million and probably 200,000 of that million are accurate yeah that's probably fair so but let's talk As, about <laughs> disclaimer with everything on the internet do your research make sure it's reliable so let's talk about self-employment taxes and there's a lot of misinformation or at least um misleading relating to self-employment taxes right see previous asterisk about things on the internet Yes, yes. Uh, and part of this is because it's really nice to create marketing that makes people feel like they're attacked because then it feels like, oh, I need to find a tribe of people to defend against this attack, right? So you'll hear people say, oh, it's unfair that you know business owners have to pay this additional self-employment tax. No, business owners do not pay an additional self-employment tax. Business owners are not going to pay any more taxes than anyone else is going to pay. Um, what self-employment taxes are, they have lots of names. These are also known as payroll taxes, as FICA taxes, as OASDI taxes, or as social security taxes, right? Your social security 
uh, the, the tax rate of Social Security as an employee, you pay for half of it and your employer pays for half of it. What self-employment taxes are is the exact same thing. You pay for half of it and your employer pays for half of it. And who's my employer when I'm self-employed, Josh? Exactly. So you are paying for both, but it's not that you're paying extra taxes. It's just that you happen to be your own employer. And so you're paying both sides of the equation. So you're paying extra taxes, but more taxes for you are not being paid. The, the total is the, is the same. It just so happens that you are responsible for the whole thing. Yeah, you're responsible for it. Just like when you work for a company, your employer pays for the marketing for the company. When you're self-employed, you pay for the marketing for the company. <laughs> what do you mean? I don't pay for any marketing. Coaches don't pay for marketing. That's not what we well, do. Well, that's a whole yeah. separate conversation. <laughs> yeah. We've had those, I think, before. Yeah. So that's that's OASDI, uh, or that's that is your self-employment taxes. And the uh, the taxes are not higher because you're self-employed. You're just realizing more of the taxes that are being structured, right? So what, when we talk self-employment taxes, we are talking Social Security. And this is important for a few different reasons. Number one, it's because uh, anything that you do with these taxes, it's going to hurt because effectively, right off the top, you're losing about 15%, right? Social security. The, uh, in addition to that, though, you also have to realize that these social security taxes are taxes that impact your social security. So a lot of people advise people on strategies, S-corporation strategies are all about this. Hey, we can lower your taxes if you file for an S-corp and do these things. What they're not telling you, and they may not know, is that what they're also saying to you is, hey, we can lower your social security benefits if we file for an S-corp. And isn't and that an interesting thing? Mm -hmm. And this is a really important thing to understand with, with uh, self-employment taxes is when you avoid them, you are reducing your Social Security benefit. Now, I am sure that there are some people listening to this who are like, yeah, but Social Security is a horrible program. It is a, you know, terrible. And, you know, you don't get your money back. It's going to be gone in five years. Right. All that fun stuff. All right. So let's address a few things. Number one. Social Security is not going to be gone in five years. Why would that be? Because there is no evidence of that whatsoever. So and what a lot of... There would also be a popular uprising. Well, that's that's separate. Yeah. But <laughs> a lot of people will point to, you know, the Social Security trustees, the people in charge of Social Security, have stated that Social Security is going to run out of its trust fund, right? It's, it's savings account in 2034. That is absolutely true. Okay, fine. So it'll be gone in 12 years. Okay. But that's not running out of its trust fund doesn't mean Social Security is going to be gone. Social Security, when it first started out, there were tons of people working because we had a lot of people in the baby boom. And when Social Security first started out, Guess how many people 
were receiving benefits from Social Security? Just take a wild guess. I mean, I guess probably nobody because it had just started. Yes. Zero. <laughs> because ah! literally it hasn't started yet, right? So we've got a ton of money pouring into it. And even over the decades after it first starting, lots more people uh, paying into Social Security than taking out. So it built up this massive, massive savings account, right? That savings account, as demographics have changed, as more people have gotten onto Social Security, as Social Security has paid out far more money than it ever mm-hmm. took in taxes from people, right? That that fund has been depleted. And a lot of this is the demographic changes. Uh, but as that fund gets depleted, that's what the trust fund trustees are referring to when they say it's going to run out of money. It's not Social Security, as it's that savings account. When that happens, there will still be Social Security. It's just that Social Security can only pay out the amount that it takes in in taxes plus money from the savings account. So we just mm-hmm. need that plus money from the savings account. So all of that is the current state of affairs. And then it's all conjecture about what Congress <laughs> will or will not do between now and 12 years. And we probably all see a million and one ideas that people have about how to fix it. And the reality is, uh, you know, it will have a cut. It's not going to be a 50 percent cut. Um, and then once that cut happens, uh, they're estimating about a quarter of a cut. Once that cut happens, then it's stable after that. Okay, okay so these are all the... Um, all of that yeah. to say, if you pay the 15, is it is it 15%? It's 15% is 15%. the number I had. Okay. Yeah, it's about 15%. Seven point something, slightly less than five. For oh, through the percentages five. in a second, yeah. Okay. But it's not... <laughs> when people say it's this percentage... What they're really saying it is is it is this percentage if you're in this Goldilocks zone. If you're outside of the Goldilocks uh, zone, is irrelevant, All right? And we'll get to that. Yeah. Um. So we'll start with Social Security is a very progressive program. A lot of people think it's not because everyone gets taxed the same rate, but Social Security, the progressiveness is the payout schedule hmm. at low levels of income, right? The payout schedule is extreme, has an extremely high ROI, incredibly high ROI. It would be very, very difficult to match the benefit of social security if you were trying to invest it into any type of investments, including the stock market. Unless you got in on GameStop at the right time. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but it still wouldn't match it because the reality is that's not a fair comparison because the risk that you're taking and because that is a one-time hit as opposed to Social Security being- Just a- let me have my fun. All right, fine. Game stop, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, it has a really, really high ROI. So not putting money into Social Security- is a really, really bad idea at lower levels of income, not low income, but lower levels. At some point, there is a big drop-off where the ROI on social security taxes drops dramatically. 
Now, the immediate follow-up question that people ask is, oh, what is that drop-off? What is that point? <laughs> I was waiting for it. It is different for everyone. Yeah. Because it is based on your marital status. It is based on your personal work record. It is based on your spouse's personal work record. It is based on your health status. It is based on pensions. It is based on future earnings expectations, right? There's all sorts of different factors that come into play with regard to whether or not you have children when that drop-off happens. And since that's a really unsatisfying answer, can you give a range of drop-offs or is it just so varied? I mean, it could be as low as, you know, it could be as low as 20, 30, $40,000 really, really highly, highly unlike. Actually, well, it could be as low as zero, <laughs> right? Shockingly and, unlikely. Yeah. And it could be as high as 120,000. Okay. Right? Because we That's all- at least a range. It is now a range. We have something to work with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure that there are scenarios that I just haven't seen where it's higher than 120,000. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have to remember that social security is not just what we think of, which is the- old age benefit, the retirement benefit, right? Social security is also known as OASDI. That is- Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. What is it? So that is old age, survivor, disability, insurance. So we also have to factor in the survivor benefit. And if you have young children, that survivor benefit is really, really important and really significant. And for we a have, spouse as well, because a surviving spouse. So yes, there are factors where a surviving spouse can receive a benefit uh, prior to retirement age um, and disability, mm-hmm. right? And all of these factors are based on your what you report and pay in social security taxes. Um, so that's not to say that there isn't an opportunity to benefit yourself by avoiding some social security taxes. But (laughs) the blind statement of let's save you money by saving on your social security without doing any of this analysis can be very, very damaging to a family's long-term financial health. And replacing all of those benefits that social security provides would cost you far, far more if you were buying insurance separately. Right. And that's where I'm guessing most financial coaches are not taking payments in cash since most of us work virtually, but that's another reason why reporting income and paying people above board is important, not just because pay your taxes, but also because pay your taxes because there's a benefit. There's a benefit to you directly. It's not just taxes make roads and libraries and schools and that kind of thing. It's also, hey, pay your taxes because then when you're on disability or when you retire or when you die or whatever, there's all these other things as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about how to calculate it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm going to give you two options, right? All right. I'm ready. Option number one, you do the following steps. Okay. How many steps are we talking here? Uh, six. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So Uh, Step number one is looking up the current year's Social Security wage base. Mm -hmm. This is one of the factors in the calculation. Then you need to calculate 6.2% for the employee side 
and 6.2% for the employer side on the wages up to the wage base. Okay. Okay. Then we uh, need to calculate, we need to calculate 1.45% on the employer side and 1.45% on the employee side on all wages. Mm -hmm. Then we need to look up the Medicare surcharge threshold and calculate 0.09% on income above that threshold. Mm -hmm. Then we remit the FICA taxes to Social Security through the IRS mm -hmm. um, on Schedule SE. Then we take the employer side of Social Security and Medicare tax as a tax deduction. However, that's not half of what you paid because not all of it had half employer side. Because taxes can't be simple. Can't be simple, right? And you then file your taxes and pay. I'm so, really hoping option two is simpler because my eyes were glazing over in there and that doesn't sound like much fun. Option two is one step. I like, well, what's the step? Hire a professional. That was one of the questions I was going to ask. Is that what, where, where do you decide what to do, whether to do it on your own or to hire a professional? I would generally recommend against doing it on your own. Um, so this could be a payroll company where you literally pay a payroll company as though you had 20 employees, but just have yourself as an employee and run all your money through that mm -hmm. or hire a CPA or hire a CFP, right? <laughs> Part of the service. Um, you know, you, that that's option two is to pay a professional to do it. What Fine. about online programs? So payroll companies will oftentimes have online programs. Or I'm talking about like a TurboTax or something like that. TurboTax. So I am not a big fan of using TurboTax. Taxes are, or any other, it's not TurboTax. Not necessarily them specifically, they just popped in mind. Um, taxes are incredibly complex. As just discussed in the six steps of this percent, then this percent, then this percent, then this percent, then half, but oh, it's not actually half. That's that pretty much, by the way, is what I took away from the six steps. A yeah. bunch of percentages and then half that wasn't actually half. Yeah. Yep. Um, TurboTax has an incentive to make you overpay your taxes. Hmm. All online programs do. Don't like that. Because what is the worst possible scenario from a brand perspective? for TurboTax? What is the worst thing that could happen if a lot of their customers have what? It's horrible for their brand. If they get in trouble with the IRS because they didn't pay enough taxes. They have audits, right? Yeah. They're losing. That's, that's the word for the thing. <laughs> um, so the IRS is never gonna audit you and get you in trouble for overpaying your taxes. Well, that would be nice if they would. But yeah. yeah. Um, so they're only going to audit you if you underpay. So the incentive that the online programs have is, is if there is a gray area, let's 
lean toward the side of not taking the deduction, not taking the credit, not doing the X, Y, or Z to avoid that audit because there can't be a human judgment call going on there. Right. Um, so that that is that is that incentive. Beyond that, it is software. It does not matter that six of the great, uh, uh, well, it does not matter that every single one of the best-selling books of the last 30 years have been written with Microsoft Word. <laughs> if my five-year-old sits down with Microsoft Word, his book is not making it the top of the bestseller list on Amazon. I mean, it could, Yeah, but you know your kid a lot better than I know your kid. And I know if my kid said, I mean, my kid is great. She's wonderful. She loves writing things, but no. So, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. And my favorite story along these lines is um, Timothy Geithner. Timothy Geithner was uh, Barack Obama's uh, secretary of the treasury. So he was the person at the very top of the government that the IRS is under. So the IRS and a whole bunch of other agencies underneath Timothy Geithner. Barack Obama was not a dumb person, and he did not hire a dumb person for the Secretary of Treasury. You may not like him politically, but he wasn't dumb. Timothy Geithner, during his congressional hearings, got in a lot of trouble for having tax returns where he did not file his taxes correctly for multiple years. And Timothy Geithner's um, response to it was, I used TurboTax, and TurboTax told me this is what I should do. So if Timothy Geithner couldn't use TurboTax, yeah. question it, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying that TurboTax is evil or bad or anything else. It does not replace a human. Yeah. It, um, and mind you, my firm does not do tax returns. So this is not a, you know, they're my Hire me. Um, so that's, so that is a, um, that's kind of the big, you know, reasons why you want to have, you want to pay attention to this. Um, what other questions? I think we covered things pretty well. Okay. So yeah, I guess one one more question, just taxes in general, quarterly payments and self-employment taxes. Do you are you supposed to pay those quarterly, just like general income taxes or are these a separate category? So all of your taxes are earned are, are to be paid as the money is earned, which means mm -hmm. according to a technical reading of the law. <laughs> We're supposed to send the taxes as soon as the money comes into your bank account, right? Now, obviously, that is not practical. The government knows that's not practical. Congress didn't write the law with regard to, right, that technical reading only. So what it actually says is, um, you know, it's the money taxes are to be paid as earned or at least quarterly, which effectively you're supposed to pay them quarterly, right? Yeah. Um, so what we're what we're looking at here is you want to uh, do your quarterly um, quarterly statements, right? You want you want to pay quarterly for Social Security, for income taxes, for any for state income taxes, 
pretty much anything earned. Um, you don't want to settle up in April and you want to settle up each quarter, right? It's really important. This is where those books at least get, uh, get people moving in the right direction, right? Which is just open up a sinking fund. And when you receive money, immediately dump a portion of that into that tax fund. That percentage should not be 20%, right? Some random number. Um, but uh, you set aside a sinking fund and just continually contribute to it specifically for taxes so that it's there when you do settle up quarterly. Yep. Um, a lot of people, their businesses go through real feast and famine periods because of um, taxes. Mm -hmm. I have a client that is going through a, um, let's just say it is a the cost of a really nice Mercedes Ooh. in taxes uh, because of um, inheriting a business and then uh, not having good advisors with regards to um, with regards to how do we make sure that we're not going to be surprised by this? Um, like I say, IRS best referral source because that's the reason they came to me. <laughs> Moral of the story, have good advisors. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I would guess when you're first starting out in a business, it's not, speaking personally from my experience, I have a cousin who's a tax attorney, so <laughs> I have a friends and family rate, so I don't know realistic rates. But my guess is it's not going to be that expensive to have somebody with a look over a new business and help you figure all of this out. Yeah. CPAs, just like lawyers, there are tiers, yeah. right? So there are lawyers that charge $200, $250 an hour. There are lawyers that charge, you know, $4,000, $6,000 an hour, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are CPA firms that, you know, they will not touch a tax return, no matter how simple it is, if it's not at least a $6,000 bill. Um, you know, there are ones where it's minimum $1,500. There are ones where uh, CPA, they generally work with more simple cases, kind of where you would be when you're starting off, not so simple that they don't understand starting a business, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where it might be $300. Yeah. Right. So for a $300 cost once a year, right? Um, Which sounds like a lot when you're first starting out and you're a financial coach. And so spending money on anything sounds scary. but when you keep in mind that this is a $300 investment into making sure that all of these social security things that we talked about earlier are taken care properly and you don't have to go through an audit and all of that stuff. And your business is, it's not even costing your business the full 300 because that $300 is also going to handle your personal taxes. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when you're starting off your business and your personal taxes are one and the same. Um, you know, I do, I, I, I'm very familiar with taxes, right? Clearly. We'll hire a CPA for my family's taxes. We still we still have one uh, to do it. And, and the reason why is because, um, you know, just like I sometimes will have to kindly educate my clients, CPAs and tax attorneys on the tax code, because I deal with those things really often and they don't, right? The mm -hmm. thing that come up along those lines. 
there's a lot of stuff in the tax code, a massive amount of stuff in the tax code that I don't deal with ever. Yeah. And I, I want to have a CPA that deals with this stuff day in and day out, be the one handling that. Yeah, I would assume this is relatively standard. My cousin who is mentioning goes to tax school every year. Like they just sit down and they're like, all right, let's talk about the changes. Let's talk about, I don't know what they talk about, but it's a really long couple days of just going through everything and refreshing everything. Yeah. I don't do that. I have no interest in doing that, which is why I don't do taxes, but yeah, they know things. It is worthwhile for you, for your family, for everything. All right. Cool. I think we're good. Join us. Uh, Emily's going to be back for a three-part series at some point in the future on uh, the group coaching uh, program. We'll cover it from a few different angles. So talk about when to do group coaching, how it fits in your marketing funnel and how to actually run sessions and lots of good stuff. Hopefully we'll find out. Bye everyone. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. Uh, It also helps iTunes and everything else know that you liked it and suggest it to other people. And if you can think of one person, a financial coach or someone aspiring to be, who would connect with what we talked about today, share it with them as well. If you're ready to take the next step and build your successful financial coaching business, FCN has turnkey resources to help you get clients, work with clients effectively, and run your business efficiently. Head to Financial Coaches Network backslash start here or Financial Coaches Network backslash stall if you're Sean Connery. Thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Financial Coaches Network podcast.